Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another extraordinary guest. He's a graduate of Columbia Law School and is currently working at Harris Beach LLC as the co-chair of the Appellate Practice Group. He's held a previous job as the Assistant Solicitor General for the State of New York, as well as being a nationally recognized appellate litigator. It is with the utmost honor and privilege to welcome Mr. Brian Ginsburg to the show. Brian, how are we doing today? Thank you, Nate. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here, and uh, let's get the ball rolling. All right, all right. So before we get started, Brian, do you mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am the co-chair of the appellate group uh, here at Harris Beach, uh, which is a major law firm uh with clients nationally and internationally, but based largely in the state of New York and surrounding area. Our home office is in Rochester, New York. We also have strong presence uh, throughout the state in in many locations. Um, As I hope we'll get into, I came to the law and law school in sort of a non-traditional way. I was not one of those folks who knew that they wanted to be a lawyer from age two or whatever. Uh, I actually didn't decide to even take the LSAT until October of my senior year in college. And then when I was in law school, I uh, took some twists and turns before deciding I actually wanted to be a lawyer as opposed to doing something else with that law degree. and then I hope we'll we'll get into it. But ultimately, I found my passion in appellate litigation, uh, which is representing clients not at the trial level in front of a jury, but on appeal, either arguing that uh, the trial something that happened at the trial level was wrong and trying to get it overturned, or defending something that happened at the trial level against an appeal taken by an adverse party. Uh, and that's where I've sort of found my. Uh, my niche and my passion within the law. And uh, let's talk about all of it. So let's go back to the beginning. As I as I have uh, written down in front of me, you went to Yale, but you majored in mathematics. That's right. And then you somehow ended up at Columbia Law School. Tell us a little bit about that journey getting there. Sure. Well, uh, coming out of high school, I was very passionate about number of things, but academically sort of two things in particular. One was journalism. I had always worked on the newspaper in high school. And the other was mathematics and science. I was really into physics and chemistry, uh, also mathematics. And so I wanted to go to a school where I could pursue all of those things. The school that I went to happened to have the oldest college daily newspaper that there is. Uh, and I, uh, even before I got my first dorm room assignment, I got my first Yale Daily News story assignment. That's how how into it I was. And they also had an excellent uh, physics and chemistry and mathematics department. And every year I was loading up on math courses and uh, to a, a, a almost the same extent science courses, uh, and also trying to further my career. At the daily newspaper, I started out as a general assignment reporter. Then I was able to cover the cops and courts beat as a sophomore. And then I ultimately uh, was elected to the position of editor of the city desk, which encompasses cops and courts, local politics of New Haven, that sort of thing as a junior. 
Um, but all the while I was doing some very, fairly serious uh, theoretical mathematics as well. And I was not entirely sure what I wanted to do after college. I thought maybe I wanted to be a journalist. Maybe I wanted to be a research mathematician or a math professor. It wasn't until my senior year that I sort of had this epiphany that there could be a way, at least I thought, to combine the love of logic and rigor and proof that had drawn me to mathematics with the essential human element of people talking to people that really energized me about the newsroom at the Yale Daily News and that I would not have to choose one or the other, but I could fuse them in the practice of law, which of course is all about application of rules, but is also about people discussing with and hopefully persuading other people. It's a quintessentially human profession. And so at the relatively last minute of October of my uh, senior year of college, uh, I took the LSAT and it worked out. Uh, and I applied to law schools really all over the place, um, uh, but mostly on the East Coast and a few in my home state of Illinois. Uh, I was always enamored with New York City and fascinated by it and, and knew that there were many opportunities there. So when I was fortunate enough to be admitted to Columbia Law School, uh, I signed on the dotted line. And then the year after I graduated from college, uh, started law school at Columbia in New York City. Yeah, so that's a really fascinating story, uh, you know, be, having, you know, journalistic skills, but, you know, your mathematical theories, which I, I I definitely do not have those skills. But can you kind of touch on, specifically speaking, the skills that you sort of gained going into law school and as well the skills you had prior to law school that were just really important for probably the rest of your career? Well, I think they re definitely relate to one another. And the the sort of two tracks that I had mentioned, uh, mathematics on the one hand and journalism on the other hand, it, it was really what I found as an essential pairing in terms of preparation for law school and really for legal advocacy, the career that I do now. As a mathematician and a mathematics student, you have to learn how to be creative and innovative within of system of rules. It's not anything goes, but it's also not just paint by number and you'll get the answer. I mean, to do mathematics at a high level, you have to, it is a creative endeavor uh, for sure. And I don't know if it's as much art as science, but there's certainly an art to it in addition to uh, in addition to science and simply, uh, you know, cranking out problem sets and things like uh, like that. Um, and that is a discipline, that sort of logical rigor, linear thinking, creativity within a system of rules. I mean, that is an essential ingredient for anyone who wants to practice law really in any field successfully. Now, go on the other hand, there's journalism, which uh, really taught me as a very practical matter how to write on deadline and quickly. Um, which when you're working in a busy law firm or government law office um, is certainly necessary with deadlines piling up and clients want things and courts want things and you have to learn how to produce on deadline. Another essential skill that a journalist develops is the ability to 
sort of become a mini expert on something, learn something, and then boil it down and describe it in a way that a generalist audience that is not already expert in that thing can understand. And the particular type of law that I do, appellate practice, that's really the appellate practitioner's stock in trade because I am not a tax lawyer who's always talking to other tax lawyers, a an environmental lawyer who's always talking to other environmental lawyers. I separate the law not by subject matter, but by by rung of the process. So in my generalist appellate practice, I could be arguing a tax case one day, a criminal case the next, a financial case the next day. And the people who are going to be deciding these cases are like me, not experts in any given field. The judges in most systems, certainly in the New York state court system and the federal court system, with few exceptions, are generalist judges. They have to decide all cases that come in front of them, whatever the subject matter. So I need to learn as much about my client's case and business as I can and then boil that down in a way that's communicate communicate be able to be communicated to a generalist audience in a persuasive way and that is really one of the essentials of journalism to become a mini expert on something distill it and then communicate it uh, to a lay audience effectively and efficiently and i think those two skills um they certainly help me now as um as a lawyer uh, I do think, though, that it was quite an and it was quite an adjustment when I went from college to law school in terms of my mathematics background, because I had all these friends in law school who would say, Brian, can you believe that law school is so rigorous? I never had anything like this before. Now I have to learn doctrine and apply rules. And meanwhile, I'm on the completely other side of it thinking, oh my gosh, I can't prove something now and then put the pen down and say I'm done because there are very few black and white answers. You're, you can never prove something and put the pen down in the law or very rarely. You can always keep refining and considering alternative arguments and things like that. There's a lot of gray area and that's what makes the law so fascinating. But I really was not used to that coming from a profession uh, or from a, a, an academic endeavor that was more black and white and more scientific. Um, so that was actually a big adjustment that I had to do in law school was to learn how to first get comfortable with the gray areas. And then as I got more advanced to really revel in the gray areas and learn that that was what sort of made the law come, uh, come alive. Yeah, I think there's a really a couple great points there. I think the fact, uh, you know, you take the sort of small subsets of both journalism and mathematics and, you know, you were able to kind of direct that sort of information towards, well, you know, this is this is what law school can encompass. Uh, and I and I think that's a really good point for 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 people out there who may not know if they want to go to law school you know, I, I know someone, uh, one of my friends who I go to UAlbany with, he is a mathematics major and, you know, he never really considered 
you know, law school coming into school, but, you know, very similar with the sort of logical aspect of it all. Um, it really kind of, you know, got the, uh, the the light bulb lit up in his head, like, oh, my goodness, like, this is something I definitely want to do. Um, but kind of speaking more on, uh, you know, your current job right now as a appellate uh, legal advocate, why why legal advocacy coming out of law school? What influenced your decision doing that? Well, that's an interesting point as well. Um, you couldn't tell it from my my web bio, but when I was in law school, I was not at all sure that I wanted to be a practicing lawyer. In fact, because I was still coming from a, a very mathematical academic mindset, I thought initially that the only way that I could be intellectually satisfied in my career in the law would be to be in legal academia and be a law professor. So I was, at least my first year of law school, I was dead set on pursuing that goal. Um, and then after, I think at the end of the first year or maybe beginning of second year, uh, folks interviewed for these things called summer associateships, which are essentially summer intern positions at law firms where you get exposed to the work of law practice. And if you get a good one, you can actually get some real hands-on experience doing the work that lawyers do, at least to the extent that you're permitted to do it before actually getting your law license. Now, I did not want anything to do with summer associateships. I did not want to touch law practice. I wanted to write law review articles and study theories and things like that. But I got some really good advice, which is, and it's advice that I give now, which is that you never, you know, you, you, you never know if it would be for you unless you try it. If you try it and you hate it, you never have to do it again, but you should at least try it because it's such a big part of the legal profession. So I did try it. And I was able to get a summer associateship at a fantastic law firm in New York. And I, I, I just came into it with an admittedly skeptical attitude. But I was simply blown away um, at how satisfying it was to do these activities, which comprise the practice of law. There was very um, deep doctrinal analysis and thinking very hard about this or that legal issue or this or that strategy to try to serve the clients that we were uh, that we were serving. Um, and I was really intellectually fulfilled and I just didn't know I could be in the practice of law. And then a light bulb went off there. I thought, OK, I want to be a lawyer, not just graduate from law school, but actually practice law. I still had no idea what type of law I wanted to practice. Um, and I didn't really know that appellate law was even a thing. I didn't know that there was a name for that. But when I was in law school, I took um, a whole bunch of courses from a diverse array of different disciplines. Um, so instead of loading up like every course about criminal law or every course about constitutional law or every course about securities law, I, I tried to do a little bit of everything uh, and really lay a, a, a broad foundation. And what I found was that there were some courses where I didn't necessarily like 100% of what I was being taught, 
and didn't feel like it was a 100% match. But for each course, there was at least something, at least some diamond in, in the rough that I found really satisfying. So I was trying, so that sort of planted the seed of how can I do something in the law that is really a generalist career where I don't have to be a securities lawyer for all time or be a tax lawyer for all time or be a criminal lawyer for all time, but bounce around from field to field. Um, and then uh, I eventually realized that there was a name for that sort of profession and it's called appellate litigation, uh, where you can break up the legal profession, not into subject matters, um, but into procedural uh, rungs of the case, pre-trial, trial, appeal, um, and that there are uh, there's a demand, at least somewhat of a demand for uh, for generalist appellate lawyers, people who have the skill set of being able to uh, sort of become experts in these things and then digest them and persuade a lay audience with them um, in a variety of uh, of different fields and not uh, be pigeonholed into one or the other. Yeah, so first, great quote. You don't know if you like it till you till you really try it. And I'd like to zoom in on that just specifically. If you have any specific stories of like a really positive experience you had at, you know, an internship or a summer associate or any kind of job and maybe a negative experience you had of maybe being like, oh, this isn't for me. Sure. Well, the positive experiences are many. Um, I think when I was in that uh, summer associateship that I mentioned, uh, which was a terrific firm, Covington and Burling in in the city of New York. Um, it's an international law firm now, but um, uh, I'm not sure if it was international then. It's always been been uh, been very large, uh, an excellent law firm. Um, I got to work on some excellent and very cerebral and doctrinal securities cases, um, white collar criminal defense cases. Um, sort of classical business financial disputes, bank suing each other in the civil area, that sort of thing. Um, and I kept finding each assignment that I got fascinating and interesting. Um, but in the spirit of uh, trying things to see if you would like them, I also signed up for a couple matters in the corporate department to be a transactional lawyer. I was pretty sure if I was going to be any kind of lawyer, it would be a litigator. Um, but, you know, I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. And I did a couple of corporate projects. And I think both I and the powers that be at my law firm agreed that it would be better if I stuck to litigation. And that is um, that is what ended up happening. Um, and that really again, sort of fueled my desire to to do what I could to be a litigator, particularly an appellate litigator at the highest level. And among other things, I know we're sort of getting from law school to the present. Um, that is what inspired me to look for and fortunately obtain uh, some clerkships after law school with two excellent federal judges, Judge Anita Brody uh, on the Eastern District of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and Judge Michael Shigaris, now Chief Judge Michael Shigaris uh, of the Third Circuit, uh, which is 
based in Philly, but uh, his office was in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and in those positions, I really got to see a behind the scenes, literally a behind the scenes view of what legal decision making at the highest level entails. So before before we get into deep into the present now, let, I don't, you know, as, as I well, said, those clerkships are only 2007 to 2009. So unless we're measuring <laughs> by geologic time, we I think we still have a little bit to go to the present. And I'd love to to evangelize about my my current firm, uh, Harris Beach and, and the excellent uh, work we do and, and how satisfying that is. But 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 no problem. Let's work up to it. So. You know, in in the in the previous podcast, I said <clears throat> I don't mean to bring up traumatic memories or anything, but let's talk about the first year in law school. How was that? How did you handle yourself? How did you, you know, make sure you were organized? Anything like that? It was. I, I mean, I handled it the way that I handled school for the prior four years, which was very dedicated and disciplined. So. I think by going straight from college to law school, I didn't really lose that particular muscle. But what was very challenging that I alluded to before was going from really hardcore theoretical mathematics to a discipline where there's so to the law, which is a discipline where there's so much gray areas. I really had to sort of disabuse myself of the mindset that there is always one correct answer and that that answer can always be deductively proved if you have enough time. The whole One of the reasons that I now know makes the law great and that I now relish in is that there often are no right answers, just sort of a range of reasonable answers. And debating those answers um, is one of really the things that makes the law come alive. But I was not really ready for that, perhaps surprisingly, as a 1L in law school. So my whole thought process, uh, really, I really needed time to adjust, um, and you know, and figure out how to use my my mathematics background and skills in a beneficial way, but not let it overwhelm and sort of cloud the enterprise of what legal thinking is all about. And also, on top of that, were there any sort of books or kind of articles that? helped you throughout law school or maybe prior to law school getting ready for it or just during it really? Um, that's an interesting question. I can't think of a single like prep book or like a, this is what law school is going to be like kind of book. Um, but in terms of articles, and I know I, I, this might not be exactly what you're asking about, but when I was in law school, you know, they would assign to us, and I think it's still the common method, what's called the casebook method. For each class, they would give you a casebook with all these judicial decisions in there, sometimes annotated with sort of questions at the end, trying to illustrate various principles. And particularly when I was being taught by a professor who, who had that class as not only his teaching interest, but his research interest as well, I would try to read that professor's legal scholarship articles um, in law reviews to the extent it was relevant to um, uh, to the course, because I found that the casebooks, rightly so, they sort of set the stage for a discussion or a debate to be had in the law school class, but they don't always go 
into a lot of depth on any one topic. And so trying to to drill down and sort of do some extra reading um, in areas where I was particularly interested or thought there was maybe more to the story, um, trying to hunt for those law review articles, ideally written by the folks who were actually up at the lectern teaching me, um, that was quite helpful uh, as well. So you you have been consistently bringing up something that is seemingly very important to you, uh, intellectual fulfillment. Oh, yes. Can you kind of describe what you mean by that and why it's so important? Sure. I, I think it's just a personality thing. Um, but but one thing that makes me happy professionally is having a job not only where I can do good work and 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 work with good people, uh, but also where I can uh, really... Um, I, I'm not sure there's a better way to put it, be intellectually fulfilled. I'm, a, I'm an intellectually curious person. I think that's what drew me to mathematics in the first place, certainly what drew me to journalism. Journalism is all about learning other people's stories. And I think law is really an exercise in many ways in, in doing that. Um, but I enjoy problem solving, problem solving of all types. And it's very important to me um, just to keep me professionally stimulated based upon what interests me, um, that law that 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 I be in a uh, in a career uh, and a job that I find intellectually interesting in addition to um, many of the other uh, great qualities of the job. And I think that uh, there are many legal fields that would fit that um, uh, that would fit that description. There may be some that that don't, um, and it may vary. You know, different people's experiences may vary, but I think also a lot of that is the type of place that you work and the type of place that you practice. And one of the reasons why I came candidly to to Harris Beach after the Solicitor General's office um, was because of the great work and client portfolio that we have at this law firm. I mean, people don't come to us for the easy cases. They come for the hard cases that need intellectual firepower uh, to win. And uh, it's really a feast in that way uh, for someone who enjoys problem solving, which I think all of the lawyers at my law firm do, and I certainly do. Um, and it's one of the many reasons why I'm so glad that I found the right law firm um, I also uh, found that same intellectual curiosity in the Solicitor General's office before that, um, this sort of team of appellate specialists focusing on the most significant, uh, most economically, socially, politically significant appeals brought and defended by the state of New York. Um, and in my prior career in private practice as well, I think it's, you're, you're right, it's really been been a through line of something that's important to me. And I've been very privileged to be able to, uh, to carve out a career where, uh, that, that has that at every step. So you get out of law school and you go into private practice. Can not, you... not yet. Not oh, yet. Not I yet, get out of law yet. school and I start clerking on a federal district court in Philadelphia. Well, how was that? Can you describe your time there? That was perhaps the most exciting job I have ever had. It was also my first real job in the sense that I had gone straight from college to law school. So 
I had done summer jobs and that sort of thing. And I worked in college to earn money. But in terms of a real honest to goodness, this is what you do job. That clerkship was the first job. And it was absolutely exhilarating because, I mean, number one is because of Judge Brody. She is an amazing judge and even more amazing friend and mentor. Uh, she really took me under her wing, as did my excellent co-clerks in that job. The chambers was organized such that there was Judge Brody, who, of course, is the judge. She had three law clerks, me and two other folks. And then there was a civil deputy and a criminal deputy who would handle a lot of the in-court uh, type of work. And it was really working. It, it, it was a, a whether you'd call it a, a, a small like a team or a family. It really had that um, it really had that feel. And in terms of the work, you just never knew what you were going to get. You clock in every day at, at the start time, 830 or so. And maybe that day would be a day full of sort of brief writing and legal research. Maybe it would be a day where someone comes in with an emergency uh, temporary restraining order request because some other business is going to steal their trade secrets or something. And you have to you know, do all this on short notice and convene a hearing and the parties are sort of beating down the door to get into the courtroom. Uh, maybe there'll be Someone, some pro se litigant who calls chambers, who wants to know uh, how to file this or that type of thing, actually liaising with the public was was at least a part of of that job. In addition to the work that we did um, amongst ourselves, no two days were the same there, and and so so the day to day was really exhilarating. Also, though, as someone who always has had an interest in writing. And getting better in my writing, I mean, I was so blessed to have Judge Brody as a mentor in that job because it was really a year-long uh, uh, seminar, if you will, in brief writing. I mean, I remember the the legal memos and drafts that I would turn into her, and we all, the other clerks would do the same thing, and the editing process that would go back and forth, I mean... She didn't have to do that with us. She was and is so good that she could have just, you know, edited it in 20 minutes, letter perfect, then file the opinion and on to the next one. But she took the time with each of us, all fresh lawyers out of law school, to really show us the ropes. This is what good writing, good legal writing is. This is an example of not so good legal writing. You want to focus on this, avoid this. Similar with lawyers who appear before her, she would always point out to us things that were done well, things that could have been done better. Um, it was just such an amazing education in the practice of law. It was, I, I couldn't think of a better way to get introduced to the profession. And then I had a very similar experience in terms of mentorship uh, in Judge Shigaris's chambers afterwards, uh, but it was a very, very different day-to-day dynamic because in an appellate court, things are a lot more regularized. There's a lot fewer emergencies. And there's also not, from a clerk's perspective, the same interaction with the public. Um, so there it would be more like uh, doing term papers or book reports would be sort of a way to think of it. You get your 
the briefs filed by both sides and you get all the materials that they reference and you try to come up with a recommendation for the judge to decide this way or that way or think about this issue or that issue in rendering his decision. It was a it was a more um, uh, uh, it, it, it was a little more um, focused in that way, uh, but still incredibly interesting and stimulating, again, because Judge Shigeris, like Judge Brody, put such a premium on teaching us uh, and helping us improve our writing and, and, and showing us sort of the tricks of the trade. Um, and I'm still very close with, you know, this was 2007 to 2009, these clerkships. I'm still very close with both of those judges today. Um, and, and it was just, it was the perfect way, at least for me, maybe not for everyone, but for me, it really was the perfect transition from law school into the world of law practice. So you're touching on something really, really important that I've at least seen in my experience and heard in my experience, just in general, and and even, you know, for any kind of profession, the importance of mentorship. Can you kind of talk about that? Because you had clearly two amazing mentors. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about how important it is to really have those mentors guide you? There's there's no substitute for it because particularly in a profession like the law, where there are gray areas and different ways of doing things, um, you you can't just learn it all from a book um, or or from a course or something like that. You need someone who's going to be invested in you to take the time and sort of take you under their wing and really show you the ropes. Um, I think it's difficult to cultivate good mentors. It's a challenge. Um, I was very fortunate to be able to to serve in those positions where there's sort of natural mentoring relationships, given how small the office is. I think I mentioned in Judge Brody's chambers, there's three law clerks, one judge. In Judge Shigaris's chambers, there were four law clerks and one judge, still though relatively, um, relatively small. Um, so I, I recognize how important it was, but at the same time, um, you know, I was very privileged to be able to have that mentorship opportunity sort of ready-made upon arrival at those clerkships. Now getting those clerkships is a very difficult process, but once you're there, um, uh, the, it almost, you can't help but have a mentoring relationship, I think, because of how closely the clerk and the judge work. Um, it was also quite interesting that the mentors that I had in those jobs, Judge Brody and Judge Shigaris, they had themselves been involved in a variety of areas of the legal profession. They were not just ju just judges for their whole lives or just lawyers before they became went on on the bench. I mean, Judge Brody was a lawyer in private practice. She was a state judge for a while before she went on the um, uh, on the federal bench. Judge Shigaris was a lawyer in private practice. Then he was a lawyer in the government. He was a very high-ranking uh, official at the uh, Department of Justice uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey. So he had seen both civil and criminal, or excuse me, both uh, government and practice and private practice. Um, so I got I really was was privileged to learn from um, from their diversity of experiences as well. And I've 
sort of tried to carry that through and have a diversity of experiences uh, of experience of my own. So kind of building on that, uh, you know, you talked about their prior experiences and, you know, in turn, they know people that know people that know Mm -hmm. people that know people. Um, And that's sort of the networking of the world. Um, I always hear the phrase, your net worth is your network. Can you, I I hadn't heard that, but that's, that's, very accurate in some ways yeah can you talk about the the importance of networking especially in a field like law it's it's very important for a number of reasons and i think it starts at least those who are really strategic about it um perhaps more strategic than i was or should have been um it's it really starts early um but that's how you you know networking talking to people meeting the right people um developing relationships with the right people that's how you find yourself in mentor mentee opportunities that's how you hear sometimes about job openings and things like that in the world of private practice that i'm in that's how uh sometimes uh, referrals happen if one lawyer says well i can't handle this or my firm can't handle it but i know a guy uh or i know a, a a woman or whoever um and you know, you sort of pass that along. Those connections are really invaluable. And I actually think, and I know this, this might be a minority view. A lot of people don't like networking or view it as a drag. I view it as kind of fun because I really get energized by meeting people uh, and meeting new people and developing the great friendships I've had with people as well. Um, and I think, you know, at its at its best, networking is really just another name for, you know, caring about those relationships and nurturing them. Um, and if you're someone who enjoys that in their personal life, uh, I think it really carries over to uh, uh, to the professional world as well. Um, but I mean, the, the the bottom line is you're a hundred percent right. There are very few. Um, legal careers, I think, that you can just sit cloistered in an office and, uh, you know, it might, it might work temporarily, but networking is something you'll need to advance within those careers, build business for yourself, build a name for yourself out in the world, that sort of thing. Um, it really it really is essential. I actually think it's enjoyable. That's kind of, might be a minority view, but it's it's here to stay for sure. Yeah, so I'm actually gonna have to agree with that minority view. I find oh, good. it really fun. Um, I only started, I guess, networking last year, um, and it honestly, it's been a great experience. I just love talking to people, but I especially love talking to people because everyone always has something interesting to say, but also they have very interesting stories, mm-hmm. and that kind of transitions to this. Now, at your time at the Assistant Solicitor General's office or the Solicitor General's office, mm-hmm. or the Assistant Solicitor yep. General. Uh, I mean, you know, more than a dozen Supreme Court cases. One of your briefs was recognized in the New York Times. That's crazy. Blowing my mind right now. Um, now, now, in fairness, I do have to say that brief was actually a brief I filed when I was at uh, my first law firm, Covington and Burling, uh, uh, right out of uh, out of my clerkships. Um so the, so the SG's office, for better or for worse, can't take credit for that. But <laughs> um, 
but uh, but yes, the SG office was was certainly a formative experience. Do you have any interesting stories from your time there? Something that sticks out to you for the rest of time? Actually, yes. Um, I think uh, well, coming from I, I came to the SG's office. Now, the the New York State Solicitor General has branches in Albany and in New York City. Uh, I had been in private practice for about six years and for pri- in private appellate practice in New York City. Um, and uh, before I made the jump to the Solicitor General's office, when I went to the SG's office, though, I didn't go to the New York City Bureau. I went to the Albany Bureau of the SG's office, Capital Region. That's right. Um, <laughs> and so the first case that I got to argue in the SG office in the highest court in the state of New York, which is called the New York Court of Appeals, was perhaps the, mo- the the case that I was least ready for as a longtime New Yorker. This case was called Friends of Fair Lake, and it was all about measuring the navigability of a two-mile stretch of river in the, I mean, river is a very generous term, in the Adirondacks, whether it could be canoed through, how often the maintenance had to be performed, et cetera. And I was just thrown into this, uh, this sub, the, 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 this, this uh, uh, discipline or the, this, this subject matter that I knew nothing about. I was not and am not really an outdoorsman, um, didn't have boating experience, certainly didn't have canoeing in the Adirondacks experience. Um, but it actually, the, the story actually um, uh, points up one of the things that's great about the Solicitor General's office. Now, when I was getting ready to argue this case, we did, as a lot of uh, government offices and law firms do, a moot court to get ready for the actual argument. So it'll be a panel of judges. I'm making air quotes. The listeners can't see that, but I'm making air quotes for judges who will be sitting around a table and pretending to be the real court of appeals judges and trying to ask the best questions they can or devilish questions to try to trip up the advocate, something like that. Um, and in that room of moot judges were some other very accomplished appellate lawyers from the solicitor general's office, as well as lawyers from the New York state department of environmental conservation, which was the particular client that I was representing in that case. And through that prep process, those lawyers at DEC, uh, some of them who had canoed them personally canoed the river literally that week, could tell me the conditions on the ground, what sort of maintenance there is, what the swale is, um, all these sorts of sort of semi nautical water type terms about the river and navigability. And then they were filling me up with all this knowledge that I was trying to be a mini expert on. And then we get to the actual argument in the court of appeals. And sure enough, some of the judges asked me very specific questions about, you know, what are the conditions like on the ground? How, how easily can someone float a log or a boat through it? Um, and I can speak uh, from, uh, you know, from a very, even though I was, you know, fresh off the, the Amtrak from New York City, I was able to speak like a tried and true Adirondacks enthusiast because of the special coalition that the SG's office was able to assemble 
for this moot court. I was able to speak like someone who knows how to canoe a river and talk about portages and things like that. Um, uh, it was really, really quite a, a story that stays with me, both because of how uh, out of my element I was in terms of the subject matter being a, a, a case about nature, uh, but also the tremendous resources and uh, preparation process of the Solicitor General's office, which I would come to see again and again um, when I was getting ready for you know, tax cases. We would have, in addition to folks from the SG's office moot those cases, there would be people from the tax department, including folks who might have testified about the very tax laws that um, that were being argued and things like that. Um, uh, there were also, uh, I was on the front lines of many of the COVID-related appeals that the state was handling when uh, former Governor Cuomo had instituted in the early days of, of COVID um, certain limitations on the sizes of gatherings that could be held inside and outside and the like, um, and having people from the Department of Health help uh, on those moot courts and help uh, help prep about the, the health risks of COVID and the like. Um, so that, that just sort of points up another unique uh, aspect of the SG's office, I think. I actually had some personal experience in kind of being a mini expert as, I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like yours, but in uh, last year's mock trial case, there was an expert, it was all about, there was like a plane crash. I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but there was a plane crash and um, there's this certain like way of the, when there's certain air pressures in the wind, it kind of makes the airplane like swirls like a tornado drop or something. And this um one of the one of the women on my team actually was being an EMT and she had went to the EMT class and they were doing like helicopter stuff and they were talking about all this stuff and she was answering all the questions and they're like like how do you know this? Wow. Like, you know, uh, she's like, Oh, it's just matcha. Like <laughs> I was I was the expert on the stand, so I need to know all this stuff. Um, but kind of zooming in on your time at I guess both prior to the Solicitor General's office and being mm -hmm. in it, is there any stark differences between the private practice and working in government? Uh, there are certainly some. Um, I think the, uh, well, one, one difference is uh, that, and this is somewhat of a, somewhat inside baseball, but I'm, I'm sure your listeners will be able to appreciate it in the Solicitor General's office, the most visible thing that folks from the SG's office do is brief and argue appeals, significant appeals on behalf of the state of New York, its administrative agencies and its executive officials. There's another thing that they do, though, which actually takes up a lot of time but is less glamorous, and that is manage the appellate docket, really the entire appellate docket of the state of New York. And by that, I mean deciding whether certain adverse trial level rulings issued against New York state agencies and officials will be appealed and for intermediate adverse appellate level rulings against New York state agencies, deciding whether they'll try to get review in a higher appellate court. So, for example, the New York state system, whether to seek review in the high in the New York Court of Appeals or in the federal system, whether to seek review in the U.S. Supreme Court. This is very different from private practice, because in private practice, if a client loses a trial and comes to me 
and says, Brian, we'd really like you to handle this appeal. Um, we just got dealt this awful ruling at trial and we've got to get it reversed. 10 times out of 10, I will say, absolutely. Let's let's do the appeal. Let's get it going. In the government, however, the process starts the same. Uh, so the general counsel of whichever agency is on the losing end of a case will uh, come to the solicitor general's office and say, solicitor general's office, we need to appeal this awful ruling. And at that point, though, the process changes and the SG office says, that's nice. Why don't you write me a memo at, and do a homework assignment and explain why you think you need to appeal and why the decision was even wrong? Maybe you deserve to lose. And sometimes uh, those appeal requests are denied by the Solicitor General's office, um, either because the SG's office will feel that the case is not sufficiently important to use its limited resources on pressing an appeal, or perhaps because the SG's office sees uh, another case sort of coming through the pipeline that presents similar issues. And they'd say, no, we want to wait for this other case to try to clarify this principle of New York law. Now, I'm imagining if I tried to do that to one of my private clients <laughs> and say, you know what, Mr. General Counsel of, of a company, I think we can't take your appeal because there's another case that'll be better for the development of New York law. So, you know, thanks, but no thanks. That's the last time I'm ever going to talk to that general <laughs> counsel. Um, so that's quite different. Another thing that's different, that's sort of unique to the solicitor general's office and to other solicitor general offices, not just New York's, is something called confession of error. Sometimes there will be a ruling that the state of New York wins at trial or in the lower appellate courts. And on further review, when the SG's office sort of sets about to dig into it, the SG will come to the determination very reluctantly always that that win that that the trial attorneys worked so hard on actually should have been a loss. We didn't deserve the state didn't deserve to win that one. And so the SG then will come into court, the appellate court, and what's called confess error, saying that we that the, the judgment, but we agree with the other side, the, the private party suing the state um, or who the state was suing, that the state shouldn't have won. So we think you should actually reverse and maybe they'll add something like and, you know, make clear that the law is X or the law is Y. Um, but that comes from the SG's office. Uh, responsibility to ensure that justice is done and not just that it wins. Uh, the SG's office has a duty to represent its client, which is the state of New York, zealously, um, but it also recognizes that that client is uh, really the entirety of the state of New York, which is best served when the law is applied in a correct way. I'm utterly fascinated. If to be completely honest, I you said it wasn't as glamorous. That's very glamorous. Um, like I well, certainly unusual. <laughs> yes, I I'm I I mean I'm an, I'm a I'm I wrote it down already. I'm going to be looking at, into it after this. But um, that's that's amazing. I don't I I'm a lover of intricacies for some mm -hmm. reason. I don't know why. And every that was really great. Just because it's so kind of very 
It doesn't make sense, but it also makes sense at the same time. It's very much in the weeds. And I could say that the last case that I argued, at least in the New York Court of Appeals, the highest court of the state of New York, when I was in the Solicitor General's office, was a confession of error case. Um, it was a workers' compensation case where the lower courts had held that a worker uh, who had injured a certain body part twice in a row was had to subtract the first injury from the second one for purposes of computing recovery and therefore couldn't recover as much. The worker appealed all the way to the New York Court of Appeals. And then on further review, the Solicitor General's office sort of took a fresh look. The Solicitor General's office had not been handling the case before that, but we took a fresh look at the law and determined that actually the governing law said that you didn't have to deduct this award and the injured worker should be allowed a full recovery if he can prove X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think that was the first confession. I mean, it's very rare to do. It's not like these happen every day. Um, but I think that was the first one I had, first and last, in the seven years in the office. Um, but happily, the court went with with our position, which was reversing the what we confessed to be an erroneous decision below and prospectively clarifying the law in the particular way that we urged the court to clarify it uh, for guidance going forward. So very, I'm still shocked over here. Very fascinating. <laughs> so let's talk about now your time at Harris Beach. Oh, I forgot sure. this. My dad wanted me to say this, that he actually does work for Harris Beach. He's a he's he owns a process serving company. Oh, I've ser okay. I've served some of your papers before. <laughs> really? Yes, it, which is crazy. My, my papers in particular? I don't think it was your paper. Oh, okay, okay, got it. It's possible. Uh, he, it, possibly. He does landlord tenant. So Okay. But, but uh he just a quick shout out there. He wanted me to say that. I was gonna say it before, but I forgot. And anyway, it's great. Um describe what you're doing right now at Harris Beach. I know you love it. Tell us why you love it. Everything like that. Sure. Well, I'm, uh, as we said at the top, I'm the co-chair of the appellate litigation practice group here at, at Harris Beach. And I'm doing a lot, basically a generalist appellate docket, very similar to what I did in the Solicitor General's office, handling appeals across a wide array of disciplines and what I did before in private practice. Uh, b before the SG's office, but now I'm privileged to do that as a partner and as a, a, a co-chair of the practice group um, in private practice. And it, it's been, I mean, the, the, the docket here is really extensive. Um, and that's one of the things that really keeps me going and, and, and is so stimulating that I can be working on, let's say, an environmental appeal one day and then uh, a business case the next, a financial case the next, and then a criminal case the next, and then a tax case, and then um, trying to think of my an election law case, uh, just just all sorts of things under the sun, um, because the firm uh, attracts such excellent work and people realize that if they want their case handled and handled well, um, they should come here not just for the for the uh, appellate practice, but for the breadth of our of our knowledge. There are lots of great cases that come in the door and some come, you know, just for the appeal. Some some come organically. Um, but I've been privileged to work on so many of those. And another great thing about that and sort of the work that I do 
not necessarily being siloed into any one subject area of practice, is that I get to work with people throughout the firm uh, in all of our offices, all of our locations, because appellate lawyers, at least when we're at our best, we don't work alone. There are some appellate lawyers, at least there's a stereotypical mindset that once a case gets ready for an appeal, the appellate lawyer will sort of take everything and tell everyone else, okay, you know, thanks, but no, but you know, I've got it from here. That's emphatically not the way I operate or my group here operates. We recognize that appellate lawyers work best when we work as a team with the people who have been handling the case thus far, particularly because of their subject matter expertise, their having lived with the case, their real knowledge of the ins and outs that an appellate lawyer can't glean from a cold record, um, but will somehow have to translate uh, into uh, you know, words on a page and then at oral argument for a generalist appellate judge. So I've gotten to work with and learn from just some of the best subject matter specialists around. I mean, I work with our energy group, our mass torts group, our political law group, our environmental law group, um, insurance law is another big area. We've got a great tax group that I've been privileged to do a lot of work uh, with, and certainly that helps scratch the mathematical itch as well. Um, but it's really that that teamwork that that makes the job so stimulating um, and, uh, and such a great aspect of this work. So specifically, have there been any moments or experiences in your time there that you really just cherish that are like very fulfilling? Boy, I mean, the answer is yes. And I'm trying to see if I can if, if I can think of a single one. I mean, they're they're, they're almost too numerous to name. Um, but in, in in sort of stepping out, stepping back a bit and, and, and zooming out a little bit, um, we, in addition to having great lawyers and my partners and associates and, and, and counsel here, we are really privileged to work with some excellent clients. And I don't know what it is. I don't think I've ever experienced this at another law firm. Our clients are so hands-on with us in in a way that really feels like a partnership. I mean, we, they, we, we are able to do the great work that we do not just because of the very skilled lawyers here, but because our clients are our partners and we can work hand in hand with them. So I think sort of that general epiphany, if you will, is not something I had experienced really in private practice as much before. Um, and that's been uh, uh, that that's been a real unique um, uh, experience. Um, but beyond that, I mean, it seems like th th there have been re really too numerous of uh, uh, of great moments and success stories and the like um, to count. I mean, recently we had a nice victory in the U.S. Supreme Court um, on behalf of the New York State Board of Elections. So I guess that's I mean, it, it was big news. It was in the media as well, simply because it was in the U.S. Supreme Court. I guess I, I feel OK to single out that moment. Um, there was a group of. Uh, political parties, so-called third parties, not Republicans or Democrats, who were challenging New York state election reforms that have adjusted the amount of voter support you need in order to qualify as a political party 
in New York, which gets you certain privileges like being able to put candidates on the ballot um, and things like that automatically, as opposed to um, having to show a need or a qualification or the like. Um, and these third parties who didn't weren't able to meet that level of support challenge these reforms as unconstitutional. Um, some absolutely terrific Harris Beach lawyers handled the case from its inception, winning multiple victories in the Southern District of New York federal court and then in the Second Circuit. And then the other side filed a cert petition trying to get the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case. There was an amicus brief in support of the cert petition. And when that happens, they often take the cert petition more seriously. Um, and then I was brought in to, to work with that excellent team um, and help prepare a brief in opposition to the cert petition, convincing the U.S. Supreme Court that it doesn't need to take the case, that the case was correctly decided and in any event does not present the sort of nationwide recurrent issue that the U.S. Supreme Court concerns itself with. Um, and last month in October, we found out that the court had decided indeed not to take the case, which was great for us because it, the court let its our earlier victories stand. Um, and we we're very, very grateful to uh, to have that uh, that recognition for sure. That's amazing to hear. Uh, you know, this episode isn't sponsored by Harris Beach, but from what I've heard from everyone, it's a great place to be at and a great place to work, great place to do business with. They're all over the Red Capital region. You're in upstate New York City, right? Correct. Am I getting all the places? Right? Every, everywhere we work. Uh, I mean, we can think about trying to, to get Harris Beach to sponsor this. I think that's a different discussion, <laughs> but uh, it, it's a it's a fantastic it is a fantastic place to to work for for young lawyers. I mean, uh, one thing I will certainly say that um, we offer our lawyers. Uh, opportunities to get in court and get that stand-up experience, whether it's arguing an appeal, which is sort of my world, or uh, uh, arguing in a trial court or uh, directing a witness or that sort of thing. Uh, we get folks that experience very early on, which is not something that you will necessarily find at large, humongous, uh, mega law firms. Um, so, you know, I, I can say from firsthand experience that this is a great place for folks who want to roll up their sleeves and get that substantive work um, early on for sure. So I have more of a, a, a personal question, I guess, uh, you know, you're always working on your craft, always, always in the office doing your thing, making sure everyone's uh, on the right path. Uh, you know, what, what would it, what would an ideal Sunday morning or, or a late su uh, Friday night look, look for you? Oh boy. Um, just doing whatever I can with my family, uh, whether that is really relaxing on the couch, watching some television, uh, going to a movie, uh, going bowling. My son loves to do bowling now. Um, uh, he's, he's four and a half years old. So, so that, that, <laughs> that's why it's noteworthy. Um, uh, just spending any time I can with, uh, with my family and, uh, and our friends. I mean, it's it's always precious time, and certainly uh, with the rigors of uh, partnership and private practice, it's especially precious time. Um, so any of those moments, I uh, I try to fill up with uh, uh, with quality time with my wife and son. That's great. Now, before we finish up, I have one last thing. Um, sort of my the last final segment I like doing the, the words of wisdom. The segment. words of wisdom. Oh, look at that! You even know it's catching on. 
Uh, what are your words of wisdom to those aspiring law students, those current law students, anyone out there? My words of wisdom are don't take opportunities for granted and try try things even if you think there's a chance that you may not like them uh, or that you're not sure that you would absolutely love them. Try to push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Um, had I not followed that advice, I would not have been in law school or an appellate lawyer today, and I probably would not be on the podcast. <laughs> well, Brian, thank you so much for going, uh, coming on and speaking to, to me and for the rest of the listeners out there. Thank you for tuning in, and I will see you in the next one.